What a joy to be here, and thank you for this beautiful song. Thank you that your presence is with us. We are saved not because of the absence of danger. We are always saved because of the presence of the Lord. You are always with us. You never leave us. You never forsake us. Thank you, Lord, as we come this morning to get together to worship you. Speak to us. Speak to us, Lord, as we lay our pride all before the foot of the cross and be willing to receive your word, the seed of your word that would generate faith in our lives. Thank you, Lord. Bless our time. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's good to be, uh, as Pastor Caroline said, preach to an audience rather than to a camera. Uh, so it's lovely to see all of you here this morning. We are coming now to the end of this short series of sermons. Uh, we have entitled it Magnificent Moments with the Master. This is a short series of sermons looking at the various characters in the gospel, how they encounter Jesus. It can be a transforming moment like the man with leprosy, or it could be a terrifying moment where the woman was uh, caught in adultery. It could be uh, a terrific moment, a thrilling moment on the cross before the thief died, or a touching moment when uh, Jairus or the women who had been bleeding for 12 years encountered Jesus. And this last final installment is uh, a tender moment uh, based on John chapter 21, the last chapter of John Gospel and the last chapter in the four Gospel. And it's about Peter. It's about how Jesus restored Peter. When we talk about Peter, uh, most of us remember that he denied Jesus three times. So this is a sermon about a failure so shocking that we still talk about it 2,000 years later. It has been said that success has destroyed more lives than failure. Someone said that success is a beach goddess. Beach as in B-I-T-C-H, beach. It's a beach goddess. It requires strained sacrifices for those who worship it. Look at the life of uh, the recent passing of uh, Diego Maradona, how success has literally destroyed him. Failure is not that bad. Failure is actually good for the soul because we need to be humble. We have too much ego and too much pride in our lives that sometimes failure is to bring us down to reality, which is, which is good. And failure is part and parcel of life. I was just reading about Michael Jordan, the greatest, one of the greatest uh, basketball of all time. He said, I've missed more than 9,000 shots in my career as a basketball player. I've lost almost 300 games. 26 times I've been trusted to take the game-winning shot, and I missed it. I failed over and over and over and over and over again in my life. And that is why I succeed. So what he's trying to say is failure is just part of, part of life. And so behind this story about Peter is the story that lies a wonderful, liberating, hope-filled truth that failure is an event and not a destiny. It is a lesson 
It is not a sentence. It is not a life sentence if you encounter failure. And this is tremendous good news because we all fall sooner or later. If you never fall, you will come. And if we are honest, we all fail probably over and over and over and over again. And as Peter's story abundantly proved, it's not our initial failure that ruins us. It's what happens next that really matters. Peter was in charge of his own failure, but Christ took charge of restoring him. And today we're going to look at John 21, how Jesus went about restoring Peter. And you know, after that, he did mighty things for God. Peter never forgot what happened when he denied Christ. And as long as he lived, he never forgot that terrible night. Tradition says, just tradition, not biblical, tradition says that he would start weeping whenever he heard a rooster crow. And tradition also says that he would wake up every night and pray during the hour when he denied the Lord for the rest of his life. And so today we want to look at this passage and some other passages in Scripture. And with the remaining time that I have, I've been warned not to preach a long sermon today. So I, have to, uh, I, I was about to bring a clock here, uh, but I ended up putting right at the back there. Uh, how does Jesus restore His fallen disciple? And this, the answer comes in five stages. But what I want to do is just to read to you a portion of John 21, and then I will pick it up again a bit later. I want to read to you this portion of it uh, from verse 15 onwards, because this is the main one. When they had finished eating... Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than this? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, and feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, then take care of my sheep. The third time, he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, and feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and you went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and someone else will dress you, and they will lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said, to, said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. The first thing that uh, Jesus God about restoring his disciple Peter. I'm having difficulty controlling this. How does Jesus restore his fallen disciple? The first one is Jesus sent for Peter. Jesus sent for Peter. It's not in, the, in, in John 21, but interestingly, in Mark chapter 16, if you look at Mark chapter 16, during the resurrection account, this is what it was said. Uh, when a woman went and, and, and to the tomb, the angels appeared and said, don't be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus 
the Nazarenes who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they led him. Interesting, he said, but go. Look at what the angel says to the woman. Go, tell his disciples and Peter. For some reason, Jesus singled out. The angel singled out Peter. Go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Go and tell his disciples and Peter. What does that mean, his disciples and Peter? What did it singer out Peter? Peter's denial has separated him from the other disciples. No doubt about it. He is probably the chief apostle. Out of the twelve, uh, Peter, James, and John was the inner circle. And out of the three, the closest to Jesus was Peter. Peter's denial has separated him from the other disciples. No doubt he wondered to himself many times after he denied Jesus, what am I now? Am I a traitor or am I a disciple? Peter may have failed in the upper room, but Jesus sent for him. Remember in the upper room when Jesus washed the feet, he said, Lord, you will never wash my feet. If you want to wash, you wash my whole body. How wrong he was. Under pressure, the bold apostle turned to butter. He was among the others and he sounded as if he was the most sinful of all the disciples. That He asked God, Jesus, to wash his whole body. His humility has a hint of pride. He's showing the others how much he loves Jesus, almost to the point that his devotion to Christ far exceeds theirs. Peter may have failed with Malchus, but Jesus sent for him. Remember, he drew the sword and Jesus said, put your sword away, it must be this way. Peter may have failed in the courtyard when he denied Jesus three times there. After that, the reason Christ sent for him. Jesus doesn't write Peter off as a permanent failure. It is not a life sentence. It is only an event. He doesn't put him in the biggest loser category. Jesus still has plans for Peter, plans to give him a hope and a future, plans to give him a second chance. So the first thing that Jesus restored him was specifically he tells the angel to send and to tell Peter. The second thing is probably we all overlook this. Did you know that somewhere when Jesus rose from the dead, Jesus actually appeared to Peter? Because twice in the scripture mentioned that, that Jesus appeared to Peter before he actually appeared to the rest of the disciples. We don't know what Peter did after he denied Christ. We don't know for certain because the Bible doesn't say that, but we can surmise that Peter did what most of us would probably do when we have blown it big time. When we have made a huge mistake, the last thing we want is to be around other people, especially the ones who knows us best and loves us the most. And having let them down, we don't want to see them at all. And sin separates us from God and from God's people. Sin isolates us so that the devil can convince us that having made such a stupid mistake, no one wants to be around us ever again. And so we probably spend our time in a miserable 
prison of self-imposed solitary confinement. I think that's what happened to Peter that weekend. We, we don't know what he did after he denied Christ. We did not know what he did on Saturday morning, Saturday afternoon, Saturday evening, and Sunday morning. But Scripture tells us, we do not know when, I cannot pin down chronologically when did Jesus appear to Peter, but we are just told in Scripture that Jesus appeared to Peter. Let me show you in Luke chapter 24, the famous account of the two disciples walking on an Emmaus road. They had this conversation and Jesus appeared to them, talked to them and then had meals with them and then their eyes were open. It says here, they got up after Jesus break, broke bread and their eyes were open. Ah, this is Jesus. They got up, they returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleventh and those with them assembled together. And saying, it is true, the Lord has risened and has appeared to Simon. When? We do not know. Must be sometime between, before Jesus appeared to the rest of the disciples. Man, this must be getting rusty, man. It's too long, never used this. It's, it's really hard to control. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. So it says, he went to sort the 11 disciples and proclaimed to, to them, it is true, the Lord has risen and he has appeared to Simon. <clears throat> and then 1 Corinthians 15, Paul's letter says this, for what I receive, I pass on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Russell, are you able to help me do the scroll? And that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. So somewhere between, uh, Jesus must have appeared to Peter privately. Uh, we have no records of what actually happened when we don't know. We only have records by saying that he appeared to Peter. Uh, what amazing grace is that, isn't it? There will be no public humiliation. <clears throat> Since Peter denied Christ, things must first be settled between the two of them. Maybe, I don't know what actually happened. We are not told. All that we are told was he appeared to Peter before he appeared to the rest of the disciples and others. And then we come now to the third thing I want to give to you, how Jesus went about restoring Peter. Not just when he sent for him, he appeared to him. Thirdly, he challenged Peter. Now, this is beginning to put him on another map. The third point is he challenged Peter. And that is uh, from verses 1 to 12 in chapter 21 of the John Gospel. Let me just uh, quickly uh, read to you. Uh, that's where, Russell, you can help me with that. Okay. Early in the morning, uh, Jesus stood on the shore in, in, in verse 4, after the disciple Peter went back to fishing with all the disciples, but the disciple did not realize that it was Jesus. And he called out to them, Friends, haven't you any fish? Can you help me, Russell? Uh, he called out to them, Friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. Verse 6, He said, Throw your net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. And when they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. And then the disciples whom Jesus loved 
said to Peter, which is John, because John's gospel always referred to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved, said to Peter, it is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him saying, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and he jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals, where there were with fish on it and some bread. And Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish you have just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. It is very interesting that multiple scholars was trying to debate how, what does 153 stands for, and they have all these kind of different views and configurations, about 1 to 17, you add it all up, it will be 153s, and all kinds of representing Trinity and various kind of views that I don't think I want to spend time expounding on it. To me, it's a very simple explanation. And some even define that in those days, there are only 153 kinds of fishes, and therefore, when it caught 153 fishes, it represents that the gospel is for all, and it's therefore commissioned Peter to preach the gospel to the world. So all kinds of views that have been put forth uh, to, to mean what 153 actually uh, any significant meaning into that number. Um, but some who just simply said that, well, most of, I think it's just so many, they were so surprised and they just counted it, that's all. And for that, John forever remembered that there was 153 fishes and the net was not torn. And then verse 12, Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. It, it, it puzzled me that if Christ was watching the disciples from the shore all night, why didn't he speak up sooner? Why did Jesus allow them to fish whole night and caught nothing? And then only Jesus said, try the other side. And then when they did that, they caught a lot of fish. Why allow them to toil for hours in frustration? I think it's because they needed to fail first. This is beginning to, to, to make them break down that even as a professional fisherman who caught fish many years, caught nothing, caught nothing at all. And maybe Jesus wants them to go through the process of experiencing that with their own mind and their own skills, their own ability, they can't do anything. And then and only when Jesus said something, they followed Jesus, they obeyed Jesus, and then Jesus showed something that was so beautiful that they were able to caught beautiful lots of fish. So failure in this case, I think, was the necessary prerequisite to eventual Success. Microsoft founder Bill Gates uh, once said that success is a lousy teacher. It seduces smart people into thinking they can't lose. Success is a lousy teacher. It seduces smart people into thinking that they can't lose. And Jesus wants us to lose in some sense. He wants us to 
to come to the end of ourselves and know that we can't carry on. We need Him. We need to be powerless before His strength can come through us. Can you imagine if that unidentified man at the shore, which is Jesus, has spoken up sooner, they would doubtless have rejected His advice. What do you know? We are professional fishermen. We know where to find fish. We have spent years fishing in this lake. But let the night pass and the sun come up and they are ready at last to listen to the voice of the Lord. So it is, I believe, with all of us. The Lord allows us to fail in our own strength so that we may learn that only by His power will we ever succeed. And it is interesting, if you were to remember Luke chapter 5, the very first time that Jesus came to and bowed before Jesus was almost identical, the incident in Luke chapter 5, which I referred to it two weeks ago, about Jesus asking for Peter's boat, and then again, they caught all night, no fish, and then Jesus said, come on, let's go out for fishing again. And they caught a lot of fish, and then Peter at that point suddenly recognized who Jesus was and then came to him and said, depart from me, Lord. Depart from me. I suddenly, his spiritual eyes were open. In, interestingly, he went through the three years, he failed, and then now as Jesus restored him, it was identical account. Same thing, no fish, and then he caught fish again. It's almost bringing back memories to his original calling of the fact that, Peter, you just need to obey me. Will you obey me even when it makes no sense? It came around full circle that it comes down to obedience. At the end of the day, at the end of our life as a Christian, we just need to obey Jesus. It's the same question that the Lord asks us every day. Will we obey even when we think we have a better way? Will we obey even when the way forward seems unclear? Will we obey when our instincts tell us to do something different? Will we obey when we have failed on our own. My favorite uh, devotional book author, Oswald Chambers, he said, the best measure of a spiritual life is not its ecstasies, but its obedience. That is, in essence, the best measure of your spiritual life is through obedience, not ecstasy that you experience. And again and again, I have to reject my own personal feeling or reasoning when it is contradict to what God's Word say. I have to learn to subject my own feeling and my own reasoning to come under the authority of God's Word and allow God's Word to take precedence over my own intellect and my own emotional feelings and just obey what God says. And so here, how Jesus restored him is he began to challenge Peter. Peter, will you obey me? That's all that really mattered. Remember way back to the first calling? You knew that, you obey me, and now you obey again, which is what defines what spiritual living is all about, and that is obedience. The fourth things that uh, Jesus went about restoring Peter, Master, help me. Jesus reinstated Peter. That was the passage that I've just read to you. 
the account of Jesus restoring Peter, reinstating Peter again. And he says, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than this? Interestingly, we're trying to discuss what does the word this mean? This, the word this. What does this mean? Do you love me more than this? What does this mean uh, in that sense? Is it, uh, uh, there are basically three views on, on that. This could mean uh, your business, your profession, your, your, your fishing and all that. Do you love me more than these things that you want? Or does the word this mean, uh, do you love me more than you love all these disciples? But most probably, people say that uh, the word this simply means that do you love me more than these disciples? It's your love for me that you have pledged often so many times in the gospel account, in the upper room. You know, Jesus, I will die for you. I will go prison for you. Do you love me more than this disciple? Is your love for me more superior than the rest of the disciples? And interestingly also that Jesus began to use his word Simon Peter, the word Simon, son of John. The Simon, son of John, he never used the word Peter. Only John said, when they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter. But the actual saying is Simon, son of John. He never said Simon Peter because he's not the rock. He has become a sand, a quick sand. He has sunk. And Jesus wanted to bring him back again. Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said, yes, I love you. And again, there are three times there, scholars talk about different uh, uh, words, love being used, agapeo or phileo in a sense. But more studies have gone into that to say that actually in, the, in John Gospel, the love is used interchangeably anyway. So we won't probably pick up on that point at this point. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Three times Jesus says that. Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus, take care of my sheep. And finally, in verse 17, uh, the third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? And then he said, Lord, you know all things. You know my heart. You know I failed you. You know I loved you to the max of my ability. You know that I love you. And then Jesus said, feed my sheep. And you also... In verse 9, we are told that Peter and Jesus had this conversation around a charcoal fire. And Jesus made breakfast for them. And did you know that charcoal fire only appeared another time, the original word, in the New Testament? And that time is in John 18. That was the very final time when Peter denied Christ in the courtyard. The same scenario because the, word, the Greek word for charcoal fire is used in John 18, 18 to refer to the charcoal fire in the courtyard where Peter denied the Lord. By one fire, Peter says, I don't know him. By another fire, he said, Lord, you know that I love you. By one fire, he denied Christ. By one, another charcoal fire, he is restored by Christ. Did you know that in, uh, in the third, third denial of Jesus by Peter in Matthew chapter 26, I don't know whether I have that on, uh, on PowerPoint, maybe not. Uh, Matthew 26 verse 72. Did you know that the very final time that Jesus, Jesus had to use three 
time to ask Peter back because, Je- because Peter denied Jesus three times. And did you know that the third time in verse 73, uh, chapter 26, let me read to you. After a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, Surely you are one of them. Your accent gives you away. And verse 74, the third time, this is what Peter said. Then he began to call down curses. And he swore to them, I don't know this man. He called down curses and he swore to them. So he was almost like invoking curses on himself. Peter is effectively saying, May God curse and condemn me if what I am saying is a lie. In his blind desperation to rid himself of any affiliation with Jesus, Peter is even uh, prepared to place himself under God's wrath. May God curse and condemn me if I lied. And that is why Jesus asked Peter three times, do you love me? Because Peter had denied him three times. And why did he do this publicly? Because Peter denied him publicly. The other disciples needed to hear Peter openly declare his love for Christ. Without hearing these words, the doubts would linger forever. The man who had been so boastful, so sure of himself, so confident of his own courage, is now thoroughly humbled. He was suddenly humbled now. The truth, Jesus has to confront him with the truth because we all know from the scripture, the truth will set you free. But did you know that the truth will set you free? Yes, but it will also hurt you first because we often know that truth always hurts, isn't it? That is why we don't dare to confront truth. Brendan Manning wrote a book called The Importance of Being Foolish. This is what he says. He says, self-deception is the enemy of wholeness because it prevents us from seeing ourselves as we really are. It covers up our lack of growth in the spirit of the truthful one, and it keeps us from coming to terms with our real personalities. No choice was possible until the enemy was identified through a painful process. Self-deception had to be unmasked in all its absurdity if wholeness is to be experienced. Can I repeat the last sentence again? Self-deception had to be unmasked in all its absurdity if wholeness is to be experienced. And sometimes failure can help us unmask from self-deception, from seeing our true self. We are not as good as we like to think we are. We are not as smart or as clever that we like to project to others. And failure confront our true self. And then we put self-deception aside and say, God, I need you. With those words, Peter renounces all his self-confidence. All his self-confidence. And come to the grace of God and say, Lord, I now know who I am. Psychologists have said that there are three sides to ourselves. 
the person that others think you are, the person that you think you are, and the person that you are. And sometimes we can live through life without knowing who we are. And through failures and all that, we confront who we are. And then we come under the foot of the cross and so beautifully know that Jesus forgives us. John Newton, the famous uh, uh, author of the famous hymn of all time, Amazing Grace, the former slave trader uh, turned Christian minister, he had this to say at the end of his life. He said, although my memories are fading, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner and Christ is a great saviour. I'm a great sinner and Christ is a great saviour. I can forget all things. Maybe I become demented as I grow old. It's okay. These two things I will never forget. That I'm a great sinner and Christ is a great saviour. J.C. Rice said, Do you love me? may seem at first sight a simple question. In one sense, it is so. Even a child can understand love and can say whether he loves another or not. Yet, do you love me is in reality a very searching question. We may know much and we may do much. We may profess much. We may talk much. We may work much. We may give much. And we can go through much and make much show in our religion and yet to be dead before God from lack of love. Do you love Christ? This is the great question. Without this, there is no vitality about our Christianity. We are no better than painted wax figures, lifeless stuffed beasts in a museum, sounding brass and tinkling cymbals. There is no life where there is no love. So friends, we need to ask ourselves this question that Jesus posed to us again. Do you love me? Because love is what brings vitality to our belief, to what it means to experiencing the grace of God, that love flow out. Lastly, before I close, Jesus re-enlisted Peter. Re after he restored him, he re-enlisted him again. And verse 18 says, Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself. Sorry, I thought you were going to help. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. And then John provided this commentary to explain what this verse actually meant. He said, Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And then he said to him, follow me. You know, early church tradition says that Peter was crucified upside down, as we all know, in Rome, because he said that he was not worthy to be crucified in the same manner as his Lord. He said, Lord, I'm not worthy even to die the same way that you died. Please crucify me upside down. It is remarkable that Jesus keeps the rest of Peter's lives and just concentrates only on how he will die. Why? Because he promised Jesus, I will go to prison for you, I will die for you. Although he failed in the past, in the end, he will glorify God in his death. In the upper room, Peter had rashly boasted that he was willing to follow Christ to prison and to death. It is as if Jesus was telling him, you were right about that, more right than you knew. 
someday you will have a chance to keep your promise. And I know in that day, you will not fail. And the early historians tell us that Peter lived and died faithful right till the very end. So we come to the end of the message this morning. What does Christ do with failure? He redeems it and transforms Peter to be a mighty, mighty man of God. And you can read that in the book of Acts, that he became the chief apostle and he do mighty things. Chuck Colson uh, died about eight years ago. He became famous through the Watergate scandal during the late Richard Nixon's presidency. He was the advisor known as the Hatchet Man. You can read all his account on the book called Born Again. That's the only book I read in a day when traveling from uh, a place in India, overnight train of 12 hours. Um, that's the only book that I read in one day, Chuck Colson, book called Born Again. And he, account, and he became a Christian because he went to prison. And after that, he started this phenomenal movement of prison fellowship and using his contact to contract all across the globe, having prison fellowship in almost every country on the earth. And he said this in, in, in I can't remember where. He said, whatever good I may have done, is because God saw fit to reach into the depths of Watergate and convert a broken sinner that can bring him to the height of what he can contribute for Christ in this world. Let me close with this, with these beautiful poems, just as an encouragement to you. Close your eyes and open your heart. Feel your worry and cares depart. Yield yourself to the Father above. Let Him hold you secure in His love. For life on earth grows more involved with endless problems that can't be solved. But God only asks us to do our best. And then He will take care of and finish the rest. So when you're tired, when you're discouraged and feeling blue, there is always a door open for you and that is the door to the house of prayer. You find God waiting to meet you there. The house of prayer is not further away than the quiet place where you kneel to pray. For the heart is a temple when God is there. When we place ourselves in His loving care. He hears every prayer. He answers each one. When we pray in His name, Thy will be done. The burdens that seem too heavy to bear and lifted away, are lifted away on the wings of prayer. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this story that you've given to us, recorded in the final chapter of the gospel account, in the gospel of John, where other gospel finishes with the Great Commission. John's gospel ended with the restoration of Peter. 
and we see mighty things that you work through this broken man who was once so confident of his own prowess, so on his own power. You broke him down to confront who he is. That we are really nothing without you. We can't do anything without you. And we can only be somebody because of Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for these amazing stories that all of us here, I believe, can identify with. Because the Word of God is truth. Truth is always relevant, regardless of culture, regardless of time, because it is the truth. And we thank you that you restore us. You know us by name. You know us. Thank you, Lord. We bless you. We worship you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Would you please stand as we finish this service with this beautiful song, He Knows My Name. Do not be dismayed by the brokenness in the world. 
because all things break and all things can be mended not with time as they say but with God's grace and with great intention on your part so go love intentionally love extravagantly love unconditionally the broken world waits in darkness for the light that is in you to shine brightly in this dark world may God the Father may God the Son and may God the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit bless you now and forevermore Amen